um, as far as what we're doing this morning. We have, we have been in a study on the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 1. And I know today is Easter, but I could not, and I, you know, and first of all, let me, let, me, let, me, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Bob, and I'm a preacher. And I want to tell you that because if I, you go out of here this morning and you say, wow, what was that? That was a preacher. I mean, everywhere you go, people are introducing themselves. I go to a restaurant, and a guy will come up and say, hi, my name is Jim, I'm your, I'm your waiter. And I'll say, hi, my name is Bob, I'm your eater. <laughs> I mean, when a policeman pulls you over, you know that he's going to do the job of a policeman. If your house is on fire and you call the fire department, you certainly hope they don't send out the dog catcher. You want a fireman, and you know the fireman is going to do his job. All right? Okay. Everybody, I'm a preacher. And as a preacher, I got a job to do. And that job is preaching. So I, I want you to understand that that's what I do. And that's what uh, all preachers are supposed to do. And uh, I'm not very big on, on, uh, on holiday messages. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I can't tell you a better message for Easter today than where we just happened to be. And I didn't orchestrate this or anything, but uh, this is a great, uh, great passage today that we're going to talk about that will help you understand uh, maybe a little bit better what we do and uh, why we do it and what the Bible says. And it maybe will help you put some things together in your life. Now, last week, my people, you remember we... We're in Romans chapter 1, and one of the greatest passages anywhere in the Bible that really helps unlock the Scriptures. And it was Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says, The invisible things, it was a great key, the invisible things that God made, uh, the visible things that God made, that we clearly see and understand by the physical things that God made. And all we had a great time with that, and we showed you how that God is the perfect pattern for everything that He created. And now today we're going to move on to the next passage and we're going to break it down as we continue our study. And, and again, um, you know, it'll help you uh, kind of put it all together uh, where we're at and where we're going. Now, let me just say this to you. In Romans chapter 1, what Paul is trying to get across and lay out is why Gentiles do the things that they do, think the things that they think, and get involved in that they get involved in. Now, when I say that, I say this. We are all Gentiles by birth here probably for the most part, unless somebody here that's a Jew, and I don't know. But if you have been just, you know, if you are just a your garden variety person today, that your parents, you know, go back four or five generations and, ish, and then go over to Europe someplace and whatever, and, uh, you know, you are, you are a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. We know that the moment we get saved, the Bible says that we basically quit being a Gentile, and now we become a Christian. Now, let me explain that. It doesn't mean that you suddenly, it doesn't mean that you suddenly uh, disown your parents or your heritage. No. My heritage is English Welsh, Alexander. And uh, if you would take my genealogy and run it back, uh, you would find that my ancestors uh, have been in this country from about back to 1700, and then it goes back to England and back to Welsh. My, my family are coal miners. My grandfather and uh, was a coal miner, and uh, all my, my mom's brothers were coal miners, and my dad's uh, family were connected with coal mining from West Virginia and Maryland. That's where we settled when we came back. Now, when I got saved, 
it doesn't mean that I disown my heritage as far as my family, but what changed about me when I got saved was my perspective. And now I understand that though I may be a Gentile by birth, the Bible says the day I got saved, I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things were passed away, all things become new. The Bible says when a man or a woman gets saved, that in the body of Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Because once I got saved, I began to look at the world differently. Somebody said it years and years ago, and it's kind of a cute little thing, but it's so true. Once I got saved, I now am still in this world, see, but I'm not of this world. Something changed about me, and what changed about me was the day I trusted Christ and the day you trusted Christ, you became that new creature in Christ Jesus. Now the Bible says that though you're still a Gentile by your physical birth, your new birth in Christ Jesus has now put you into God's family, and now you go back to this world, the Gentiles, the Jews, and you don't have to take anybody's side in any kind of conflict or any kind of discussion. When I deal with people, whatever their problems may be, if you have a husband and wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe just two people that struggle and can't get along, I've learned early on, never take sides. And the reason why you don't ever take sides is because you know both are got problems. I have never met a scenario in my life where both didn't have problems. Now, one may have had more problems than the other, but at the end of the day, we all got our issues, don't we? And I learned early on that when you deal with people that you, you, you don't take sides. Well, as a Christian, the moment I got saved and I look back at the world, my dog's not in this fight. I mean, I don't care what the Republicans or the Democrats do. I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat. I'm a Christian. Because the moment I become political and I, then, and I, I say I'm a Democrat, then I'm not going to be able to win the Republicans because they don't want to hear me. The moment I say I'm a Republican, and then I'm, the Democrats are not going to want to hear my message because I've taken a side. I'm neutral. My Bible says that I, I am seated in heavenly places. My Bible says that I am an ambassador back to this planet. And my job is to take not anybody's particular side other than God's side. That's my job. And when I stand up here, I don't preach politics. I may make fun of it. We may laugh about it and have a good time. But I don't take sides. Because my job as a pastor, and really your job as a Christian, is to take God's side. That's what we do. And I tell people what, what God can do for them. I tell people what the Bible can do for them. I help people find the things of God that will help them fulfill their lives. And some of you are already involved with me in dealing with people. And one of the things that you're going to find that's going to be of great benefit to you is what we're talking about in Romans. Because the book of Romans is a book that shows you how Gentiles think. And I don't know of any other place in the Bible that helped me when I'm dealing with people, because most of the people we deal with are Gentiles. I don't know of any other place in the Bible where I didn't, uh, I didn't, I, I, I got more help in understanding why people do the things that they do, why do they go to the places they go to, why do they have the mindset that they have? And why do they get themselves in some of the most ridiculous circumstances that you ever find out in life? And the answer to that is, is understanding how Gentiles think. And Romans chapter 1 is what he does. He lays that out, and we've been coming through that. Now, I want to begin this morning in our next passage, and that is 
chapter 1, verse 21, and he says this, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. For perfecting themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we ask you today, Lord, to be with us. Help us, Lord, to put aside anything in our lives that would take our focus away from today. We love you. We ask you, Father, for those that are here today that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, that, Lord, this would be a time that they could sit back and reflect on where they're at in their own life. And, Lord, I know that anything I have to say wouldn't, could not be a value of anybody. And yet I ask you, Lord, to take what we've got today and through your Spirit touch the hearts of these, your people. Every man and woman in this place, Lord, may they leave today getting the message that not that I have for them, but that you have for them. And use this unworthy vessel today. Use this broken tool to be able to uh, convey the holy words of a holy God, an uncorruptible God, to us. And, Lord, I'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. You know, as you come through history, you see uh, this great concept about Gentiles. And uh, Gentiles, and, and we are Gentiles, we all have this same problem. And it's laid out right here. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. And that is, it says, <clears throat> when they knew God, and we talked about that last week, that in reality, there's no such thing as an atheist. An atheist may claim to be an atheist, but the Bible says in John chapter 1 that he was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The fact that a man wants to reject the knowledge of God or reject God never means that God doesn't deal with him. And uh, we talked about how God reveals himself uh, through the creation that he made. <clears throat> Verse 21 says, when they knew God, because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Now, this is man's basic issue. It was Voltaire, the great uh, humanist and the great secular mind of the Europe that come out of, the, out of Europe in the, uh, in the uh, uh, late 1700s and the mindset that produced him. You know what he said? Voltaire said one time, he says, God created man in his own image, which is a quotation from Genesis chapter 1. And then he said, and then man returned the favor. And that's exactly what Voltaire thought about God. But you know what? We can just don't get upset with Voltaire. All Gentiles think that way. Gentiles, and I hope that you see this by the end. And we're going to have some fun this morning. It isn't all going to be, you know, you really don't need your airbag. Uh, but, but, but I want you to see some things today. Because that's how Gentiles think. You and I, as Gentiles in our world, before you were saved, and unfortunately many times God's people, even after they're saved, they follow this same line of reasoning. And the thing that I want you to understand this morning, that Gentiles will always take the glory of an uncorruptible God and will try to make it like corruptible man. That's what they do. And I want you to see that. And the first thing he says here, they glorify him not as God. Because man's basic problem is, that he wants to take God's glory and wear it himself. Now, that's what man does. 
And uh, you're going to find that most people today don't give God the glory for anything anymore. You're going to find it many of God's people. And a lot of these things splash over into Christians' lives. I mean, even though you're a Christian, does not mean that you can't live by it, the world's standards and get yourself all messed up. You're going to find that most people think the first sin in the Bible started with Adam and Eve. And, of course, that's not true. First sin in the Bible that is recorded in the chronology of the Bible is Adam and Eve in the garden. But the first sin in your Bible took place long before that between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 2, which is defined in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, where Lucifer, who became the devil, said in his heart, I will, I will take my throne and establish it before the size of God. The Bible says the first sin in the Bible was pride in Lucifer's heart that he wasn't satisfied with what he was. He wanted to take and get the glory that God had and give it to himself. And you know what? That's all of our problem to a certain degree. Now, when you get saved, you ought, to, you ought to always give God the glory. But you have to understand this. God as the supreme God, and if I guess if you want the, the greatest chapters in the Bible that declare God as the supreme being of the universe, it'll be Isaiah chapter 41 through 48. Those eight chapters are the greatest chapters I know of in the Bible that declare God as the supreme being and there are no other gods beside Him. And you're going to find that uh, God created everything that He created. He created everything that He created for His honor and for His glory. Somebody asked me one time, what is God's main purpose? Why did God do things the way He did it? Why does God have an unending plan that, that obviously starts from eternity past and winds up in eternity future with a little parenthesis in the middle as we know time? What is God doing? Well, I'll tell you. Number one thing of God is this. Because He is the supreme being in the universe, God demands honor and glory from everything in His creation. Did you ever notice how that in uh, the Gospels and throughout the Bible, everything that God created obeys Him? You know the animals have a law by which they follow? The animals have a, a law by which they follow. You never find an animal rebelling against God. Never. God set patterns for those animals, and those animals go by that pattern. Why, back there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when the little disciples were on the ocean and they were tossed through and fro, Jesus stood up and He said, told the sea to be And it quieted the sea in that moment just with what He said. You know what the disciples said? They looked at each other and they said, even the seas obey Him. Because God created everything for His honor and glory. You know the only thing that God created that is His creation that doesn't give Him the honor and glory? It's you and me. It's man. The animals obey Him. The wind obeys Him. The sea obeys Him. The, the trees obey Him. The birds fly south and north. They obey Him. The only one of God's creation that refuses to obey Him on a regular basis is us. And God wants the honor and glory for everything that He created. The Bible says in the Bible that God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And you choose which one you are going to be as far as what you're going to do with your life for God. Then He says in verse 21, it says uh, toward the middle of the verse there, it says, Neither were they thankful. And I'll tell you another problem Gentiles have, and this splashes over into some of our lives, is we take God for granted. We take God for granted. 
And uh, now, this is my big gripe with Easter and Christmas. Because, you know what? I'm not saying this is true about anybody here this morning, but I know it's true on across the board. People show up for Easter, and then they go back, and then and they, they never think about God again till Christmas. Don't think about the fact that the one who puts air in your lungs is God. They don't think about the fact that the one that's hand that guides you through life is God. And what we do, and we all do this, we wind up taking God for granted. How do you think God feels when you sit down and shovel your food in your mouth uh, and never thank God for the food that He gave you? I watch God's people do that. I watch them sit down and just shovel that stuff in and never one time stop and thank. How do you think God feels? I mean, He's the one that grew it. He's the one that brought the rain and the sunshine enough in the right order to grow it. He's the one that gave you a job so you'd have enough money to buy it. He's the one that gave the men's strength to labor to harvest it and produce it to get it to you. When you look at all of that, how do you think God feels when you and I just sit down and just shovel it in and never say thank you? That's what we do. It's so subtle. I, I have a thing in my own personal life, and I, I, you hear me talk about it many, many times. And it's a little phrase that's really not found in the Bible in the phrase, but it's found in the Bible in, as you study it, in a simple little phrase called God consciousness. And this is what God's people can't do. God's people can't stay conscious of God in their lives. Now, we don't expect the Gentile world to be able to do it, and they don't. But I'm telling you, you ought to have in your life, how many times a day do you go through life and never think and never thank God for the things that He does? You see, God consciousness, God consciousness is when you get up in this morning, you're aware of Him, you go through your daily life, you're aware of Him and what He does and what He brings into your life, and you never lose sight of the conscious fact that God is there for you every moment of the day. And yet, we forget that. We forget that. And we come to the point in our lives as Gentiles where we struggle with that. The last part of, uh, last part of verse 21 says this, And became vain in their imagination, and their heart was darkened. Now, there's two key words there that are absolutely essential for us understanding uh, not only where the Gentile mindset, because when you start to work with people and you start to help people get to God, find God, or, or deal with through the issues of their lives, these are the kind of things that you're going to come up against. How many times have I sat down with a young man or a young lady and the issue in their life was something that they loved something more than they loved God? How many times? How many times was it that they, in somebody's life, that, that God was way over here and everything else was in front of them? This is where the rubber meets the road with Gentiles on planet Earth. And if you're going to help people find a God, it's these kind of issues that you're going to have to help them work through. And boy, Romans chapter 10 lays it out so very clearly. And the two key words here in the last part of verse 21 is vain and foolish. You know, in your Bible, certain numbers mean certain things. In the theology world, they call that Bible numerics, Bible numerology. That, that, that a, the number value is consistent with something in the Bible. We know that in the Bible, the number seven is the number of perfection. So you're going to find over and over and over and over and over again that when God does something, He does it by seven. 
you're going to find that the number of three in your Bible is the number of completion. The number of five in your Bible is the number of death. You know why You know why number 13 has always been portrayed as an unlucky number? Because that's the number of Satan in the Bible. Judas is a chariot. The one that portrayed Christ had 13 letters in his name. Babylon, great mystery religion back there, 13 parts of that. You're going to find the devil left heaven and got kicked out and took some angels with him. He took one-third, one slash three, 13. And there's certain numbers that just certain mean certain things. Now, I know you can prove anything with numbers, and I'm not saying that every number means something, but there are certain numbers that do. The number 10 in your Bible is the number of the Gentiles. That's you and me. You're going to find that the first Gentile kingdom found in your Bible is in Genesis 10. 10-10, as a matter of fact. You're going to find the father of the Gentiles in the Bible is Noah. And if you counted up his genealogies, he's 10th in the line from Adam. You're going to find that in Genesis chapter 24, Isaac goes to get a Gentile bride. You know how many camels they take? Ten. I didn't say packs of camels. I said camels. Ten camels. Acts chapter 10, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 10, the missionary called the Gentile. Uh, John chapter 10, he speaks of Gentile sheep, not of this fold. And the last Gentile kingdom in your Bible laid out in Revelation and defined in Daniel chapter 2 is represented by the ten toes of Daniel and ten nations. Ten is the number of the Gentiles. And you're going to find that uh, uh, he says in Romans chapter 1 verse 22, uh, 21 that he says they became vain in their imagination and that vain in their imagination leads them to a foolish heart. Now, the book in the Bible that deals with Gentiles in a greater way than any other book I know of in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, when you come through the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that talks about the vanity of life. In fact, I gave you those list of ten because in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is written primarily to Gentiles, about Gentiles, the way they think, there's ten vanities listed. And the Bible says that, <clears throat> when the Bible says that these Gentiles became vain in their imaginations, and then that because of that their foolish heart was darkened, this is where Gentiles think. And this is, as Christians, this is where you and I struggle. And uh, we, we have this infinity that we want to take God's glory from Him and we want to wear it ourselves. Now, the word vain or the word vanity simply means it's worthless. It means that there's no value to it. Something that is vanity is no, of no substance. Something that is vain isn't worth anything. And when he comes through the book of Ecclesiastes, and i got to give you just a little heads up of how this book figures into all this. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived. And Solomon is a man that when he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he does it from a very unique perspective. I, if we had time this morning, I could bring you through the book of Ecclesiastes and I'd show you every psychology or ology that a Gentile man comes up with. We'd find pragmatism, socialism, uh, capitalism. We'd find existentialism. We'd find all the great philosophies that Gentile man puts together and to portray as some kind of truth. And when Solomon writes this great book, he goes through and details all of these philosophies of man, and he says, there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And when he lays these things out, he shows you that these things are all vanity when it comes to the Word of God. 
And these ten things are exactly where Gentiles, and unfortunately many of God's people, put their trust. The first one is found in 2.13, is the vanity of wisdom without God. Knowledge without God is, is, is going to be a disaster. And you know what? You can have wisdom. <clears throat> you can have wisdom in your life. I've met some people that were pretty wise as far as the world is concerned, but they didn't have any ability to connect it back to God in the Bible. And that is where it really needs to go. He says in 2.19, the vanity of labor. Most people go to work and don't really understand the process of why in the world. I mean, let me ask you, <clears throat> is this life a lot like my, my, my granddaughter's got a hamster? And some of you have kids have hamsters. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a hamster, but a hamster sleeps during the day and stays up all night. <clears throat> and all night long, that hamster does one thing. It gets in its wheel, and it runs like it's going somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I just look at him, and I think, well, we're training him for the hamster Olympic. He's going to be really good. And that little sucker will just run around that thing all night long, and then he sleeps all day. And I look at that and I thought to myself, boy, if that isn't a picture of most people today. We're running around in a little cage, in a little circle, running like we're going somewhere. we got a lot of movement, a lot of action. But at the end of the day, we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. Boy, if that isn't life on planet Earth. And you know what? you got to stop and ask yourself sometimes, what is it? What am I doing? Where am I going? I work all day. I come home. I do this. I cut the grass. I have to do this. I have to do all the errands. I have to feed the dog. I have to walk the dog. I have to take care of the kids. I have to raise the kids. And at the end of my life, what was the purpose? If there isn't more to God than us just running around in a little rat like a maze, then we've all been deceived. You know what that's called? That's called the vanity of labor. In 2.26, that's called the vanity of purpose. In 4.4, it's called the vanity of ambition. Ambition. In chapter 7, verse 6, it's called the vanity of fun. 4.16, the vanity of fame. In 5.10, the vanity of money. I, I, I never forget a guy. I read this story years and years ago. <coughs> this guy <coughs> had more money than knew what to do with. And uh, <coughs> he had all kinds of things that he just... I mean, his whole life was built on things. And if anything shows you, if anything shows you the truth and the, and the vanity of the way we think sometimes, when he, he had this favorite car, and it was back then, this was back in the 60s, it was a early 70s, it was some collector's item car, I forget what it was. But he loved this car so much that when the thought of dying and being separated from his car was just too much. So he made arrangements that he was buried in his car. And they dug this big hole. They set him behind the steering wheel. And, and, and lo and behold, they buried him in that car. And his family looked at that, and they thought that they had done him some favor. Like, he's happy now. And, you know, we look at that and we think, but when the Egyptians, you know what? When they buried their pharaohs, they used to put them in a boat, put all kinds of food for their journey on. They'd take their servants and they'd bury them alive. Wasn't a good job to be a servant back then. They'd seal them in the crypt. And the servants would just sit down and they'd say, well, when he goes to the journey in life, we're going to still be his servant. 
And he got a boat there so he could cross that big river or that big ocean that gets him to wherever he wants to go, where it's all going to be, where he's... Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Let me tell you something. When you die, you go to heaven or hell. It's just that simple. There's no Valhalla. There's no purgatory. There's no intermediate place between. The closest place to hell and earth to earth would be Topeka, Kansas, where dead men still walk the earth, I guess. I don't know. But there is no, there's no, there's no dressing for it. You don't take your favorite car. You may get buried in your favorite dress, your favorite suit, but it's going to stay there. And 60 years after you're dead, it's going to be full of wormholes. It's going to deteriorate. But Gentiles think that they're going somewhere when they die. Well, you are, but not where you think you're going. That's the vanity of selfishness. 6.9, the vanity of covetousness. And 8.10, the vanity of rewards. Somebody said one time, and it's so true, life without God. And if you don't hear anything else that I say today, you probably want to take this home with you. Somebody said one time, life without God is a hopeless end. And boy, that is the vanity that he talked about. You can have all of these things. You can have put all these things in your life as we do as Gentiles. We can build us up as we're somebody great. And yet at the end of our lives, I want, to know, I want you to know something. Life without God is a hopeless end. Because all is vanity. But on the other hand, the man says, life with God is endless hope. And there it is. If I could talk about whole concept in the mindset of Gentiles, it's just like that. Life without God, ladies and gentlemen, is a hopeless end. And life with God is endless hope. And there lies where the Bible says that all is vanity outside of the Lord Jesus Christ in what God has you. Bubba preached a message last, last Sunday night at the mission. Where you at, Bubba? Did a good job, Bubba. And in starting in that message, he got up there and he said, there's over, there's 200,000 characters in the Bible. That's how he opened his sermon. Good sermon. 200,001, Bubba. That's all right. You missed one. He said there's 200,000, really he said there's over 200,000 characters in the Bible. And then he said he was preaching at the mission. And he was trying to make the point to a bunch of men in the mission who were homeless, had drug addictions, alcohol addictions, and all kinds of serious problems. And we try to go down there and minister to them. And he was trying to get them to see the reality of where their life was at. And he did it in a great way, as, as most of the guys do when you go down there. And so he started out with an analogy that I thought was a very good analogy. He said there's over 200,000 characters in the Bible, yet in reality, when you study them, they all fall into one or two categories. And uh, he said they're, they're either, you're either here tonight and you're a wise man or you're a foolish man. Then he took the passage over there in Matthew chapter 7, which I thought was brilliant, tied it all together about the foolish man that built his house on the sand and the wise man that built his house on the rock. And that little story, the Bible says, the man who built it on the rock, when the winds came and the rains came and the disasters came, that house was stood on the rock, it was firm on the rock, and it didn't get blown away. The guy who built his house on the sand, sand is always moving. Sand is fluid. It blows with the wind. It shifts. It changes. 
It'll bury something today. It'll unbury it tomorrow. There's nothing stable about sand. And he made the, he made the analogy that when a wise man will build his house on a rock, the rock being the principles of the Word of God, a foolish man will build his house on the sand, the principles of this world. And he says every man in this place, every man in this place is either a wise man or a foolish man. And he says the thing that determines that is the choices that we have made in life. And I thought to myself, wow, that is a, that is a great analogy. And that's exactly the Bible says happens when a man's heart becomes vain. He becomes foolish in his heart. And he then takes the glory to God and tries to put it onto himself. And that's when we get into problems that we think that we are, we are, we are better than we are. I've dealt with people all of my life. And I've seen them come in all shapes and sizes. I've seen them come in all kinds of conditions. For 36, 37 years of my life, I've sat down and listened to people tell me about the scenarios they've gotten themselves into. Some of them were pretty easy to fix. Some of them, very frankly, were unfixable. Sometimes the longer you let a problem go without dealing with it, it gets so placed where you can't fix it. Just that simple. That doesn't mean that God can't fix it. It means that you can get so far from God that you won't let God fix it. That's what I'm talking about. In every one of those scenarios, I've seen them come in young. I've seen them come in middle-aged. I've seen them come in, you know, young married couples. And I, in every, every situation, it goes back to one concept, and that is the choices that they have made in life. I've seen young kids before, uh, you know, make bad choices, make some choices that they shouldn't have made, and they have to bear the brunt of those choices for the next 25 years of their lives. You know why so many, you know why in America the divorce rate is off the scale? I'll tell you why it is. One simple thing, young kids today make some really bad choices when getting married. That simple. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. While this divorce rate of 20 years ago was half the adult population in this country had been divorced one time and half of them had been divorced again. That was 20 years ago. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you find yourself in a divorce situation, I'm certainly not speaking down to you. I'm just telling you and telling everybody that it's the choices that we make. And maybe you never had anybody to help you figure out. Maybe you never had anybody to sit down and talk to you the way it really is. But I've learned all down through my life that when you're dealing with people, it all comes down to the choices that they make. My goal as a pastor, your goal as a counselor. When you start to work with people, it's one thing. Get them to quit making bad choices and start making good choices. I had a man call me one time where it was a young kid. And he was said, I'm going to commit suicide. And uh, he had, he had, he had didn't it, did this for, for many, many times. And this was his way of getting attention. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you're going to probably take this wrong, but I'm the last guy to call to tell me you're going to commit suicide, especially if I've been working with you. I mean, don't be surprised if I'm working with you and you don't want to do Because you know what? If I work with you and you do what's right, suicide will be the farthest thing from your mind. I'll get you plugged into the Bible, plugged into the God. I'll get you looking at the real value of life and what God wants you to do. But I've had people I've done that with that won't do what's right, and they always want the attention focused on them. 
They'll call you up and they'll say, you know what, I'm going to commit suicide. Well, okay, but you better take two bullets. You're not a very good shot. This guy called me up one night and he said, Bob, I'm going to commit suicide. As soon as I hang up the phone. And he says, and, and, like he, and he almost said, what do you think about that? See, he wanted, what he wanted me to do, he wanted me to get down on his knees and beg him not to. He wanted me to run over the house and break down the front door, take the gun out of his hand. And, and, yet, and then, you know what? Here's what I told him, because it's the truth. I said, you know what? I don't want you to commit suicide. I think it's a terrible thing if you commit suicide knowing what you know. But I do got to tell you this before you pull the trigger. You may commit suicide tonight, but, and you need to know this. Your choosing to commit suicide will just be another choice and a long list of choices in your life that were bad choices. Unfortunately, this will be the last bad choice you make. Hung up the phone from me, never committed suicide. You say, well, what, do you, what would you have done if he would? I had a greater illustration than the one I just gave you. But I'm telling you, the bottom line is this. Life is choices. We make our choices. Somebody says, well, I got a, got a rough thing in life and it wasn't fair. When is life ever fair? When is life ever fair? You want to talk about a rough time in life that wasn't fair? How about Job? How about Noah? How about Jesus Christ himself? See, I'm not responsible for the bad things that I have no control over in my life. I don't have any control over that. Somebody rear-ends me on the way home today, that ain't my fault. I don't have, I can't take responsibility for the bad things that come into my life. I'm not responsible for them, but I am responsible how I react to them based on the Word of God. Choices, choices, choices. I've seen them in all shapes and sizes make bad choices. I've seen young couples make bad choices. I've seen older people make bad choices. I've seen young singles make bad choices. And I'm telling you, it all comes down to the principles. You're either a wise man or a foolish man. And you know how you become a wise or a foolish man? Bible says it over there in Proverbs 13. It's who you hang out with. You hang out with wise people, you become a wise guy. I don't think I meant that the way it came out. You hang out with fools, you become a fool. It's the association you keep. And that's why the number one person you need to hang out with in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll always lead you the right way. He'll always get you where He wants you to go. And verse chapter, or chapter 1, verse 22 says this, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I told you this a couple of weeks ago. The longer you're a Christian, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer we live, the less important we had to think we are. Boy, have I seen the reverse of that. I've seen people that have been saved 10, 15, 20 years that in churches that they think they run the church. That they think that everybody, they get some little power in their life, and boy, they hold it over everybody's head. That's not the mark of true biblical spiritual Christianity. True biblical spiritual Christianity is the longer you serve God, the longer you live, the, the, the more worthless you understand we are and the greater he is. But just as the book of Ecclesiastes defines vain and vanity, the book of Proverbs then defines what a wise man and a foolish man is. 
And that verse I gave you about the company you keep is Proverbs uh, 13, 30, I believe it is, or 20, 20, 20. Now, not only does the Bible define for you in the book of what the world portrays it as, book of Ecclesiastes, what vanity, vanity and, and what vanity is, but then you come to the book of Proverbs. I know of no greater book than Proverbs that in one consistent book lays out the issues that you and I will face and shows us what they are and what our sh should be to it. Honest to goodness, if there was one book in the Bible, folks, one book in the Bible I could learn, one book in the Bible that I could get total recall on, that I could live it 24-7 in any situation, be able to pull the principle out, hey, it'd be the book of Proverbs. Personally, I think that the book of Proverbs is the issues of life and everything else in the Bible, every story, every illustration, and everything you find in the other 65 books are built around a principle of life and choices in life around that book. It's an incredible book. If there's any book that I could get total recall on, it'd be the book of Proverbs. And that'll never happen, but I, that, I would like it to. But you're going to find just the Ecclesiastes defines what vanity is and being vain is, the book of a Proverbs defines what a wise man versus what a fool is. Now, in the book of Proverbs, a wise man is defined this way. First, And these are not in order, so if you ever put them in your Bible, you can put them in the order. I didn't put them in order. But the first thing a wise man is in the book of, uh, in the book of Proverbs is found in 1130. And the Bible says that a wise man wins souls. A wise man wins souls. Now, I know the standard teaching by most of God's people today and the most in the idea. You know, most people, most saved people have been saved for 10, 15, 20 years. Never won a soul to Christ. Never won a soul to Christ. And they go out and they try to get all these techniques on soul winning. Buy this guy's book, this is his guy's set of tapes, get all of this stuff. And then it, that maybe in that technique lies the ability to to win somebody to Christ and learn how to do it. Let me tell you something. Soul winning is a natural act that comes about because of your intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. I don't know what to tell you. It goes back to what I said a couple of weeks ago that we like to be legends in our own mind. Now, you know I'm saying this, you young Christians that have just been coming uh, for the last, you know, I give you four or five years and tell you, don't ever apply this directly to you. Just learn from it. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, and I say it all the time. If you've been saved five years or more and you look back in your life in the last year, two years, and you haven't won, God hasn't used you in some point a person's life to <clears throat> win that soul to Christ, you can pretend all you want. You can go out and buy a 65-pound King James Bible. You can yell amen louder than anybody else. You can get up and jump and shout and run around the room. And you can pretend in your mind that you're doing what God wants you to do but there's something wrong with your intimacy level. Now, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. It's just that simple. Now, now I know you don't like that because we are, I don't like that. This week, my man Clayton got saved Thursday night. And I prayed for him forever, and I love him. Got a new Bible with you, don't you, huh? I love you, buddy, and I'm pray, praying for you. And he'd come up to me that <coughs> He come up to me. I mean, he about knocked me over after Bible study because I had talked to him a while back. You don't care if I, I tell this. I, I'm gonna tell it anyhow, so you might as well get used to it. <laughs> I had I had talked with him a while back, and he had some issues that he wasn't sure on. 
No, I could have done the standard Baptist preacher technique, put a double hammer lock on him and got him down on his knee and, and made him get saved. And I probably could have done that. And then I could have walked out, put a notch on my pistol, said I got me another one. But I knew he wasn't ready. And as much as I wanted you saved, God wanted you saved a lot more than I did. And you're his, not mine. So I just shut my mouth, kept preaching. There's times in these services when I'd give an invitation, you'd raise your hand. I'd pass right over you. And he was telling me I'm not saved. Thursday night, with no passing over him. I said, amen, looked down up. He's coming out on me like a linebacker, coming over me. He runs up to me and he says, Bob, I'm ready to get saved. In fact, what he said was, I'm ready. And I said, ready for what? He said, you know, brain lapse. I'm ready to get saved. Whoa, okay. Now, I just told you that story. I didn't win him to Christ. I just took him in the room there and showed him the Bible, showed him what God said. You know who won him to Christ? Mike, right there. You know what he said to me, Mike? And this is not, I'm, I'm using it. I don't care if you like it. What he said to me? He says, I want what you got. I want what Mike's got. I want what he's got. I see the difference in his life. There's something different about him. I want that. I don't have that. He didn't say he saw any difference in me. <laughs> he didn't say, Bob, you're the greatest Christian in the world. He said it was mine. <laughs> Glad I got that out of my system. It's been bothering me all week. See, I'm not so stupid to think that I had anything to do with it. I was just a tool that God used to get him to that point when he was ready. There's the man that made the difference. And I, How long have you been coming, Mike? Six months. Boy, six months. Six months. Six months. Now, I say all that, and I don't mean to put you boys on the spot, but I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You know what I see in some of you that I don't see in some of you? We're off the message now, never to return. But you know what I see in some of you that I don't see in some of you? I'll tell you what I see. Some of you are so hungry for truth. Some of you are so hungry for God to use you. Some of that's all you think about all night long. All you think about all day long. Wanting God to use you. Wanting God, wanting to learn this, wanting to do this. And God, and it, it's things like that. And I could tell that story over and over again in this church. But this just happened last week. And I want everybody to know, I had nothing to do with it other than praying for him. The man, that he saw the difference in his life. You know why? You know why many times people don't want to get saved? They don't see any difference in our lives from everybody else. Now, I don't know what to tell you. I apologize for putting you on the spot, but I don't apologize. But I'm not such a fool as I walk in there open my Bible or running through Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 10, winning Christ, lead him in the sinner's prayer, and I walk out saying, I won somebody to Christ. I didn't win anybody. He won him. All I did was be in the right spot to, 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 to show what somebody else had already done to work on. And I'm telling you, it's an intimacy factor. You can kid yourself all you want. You can kid yourself all you want. You can get that legend in your own mind syndrome all you want. You can parade around and talk about how spiritual you are, but you know what? The truth of the matter at the end of the day is the intimacy in your life with the Holy Spirit of God. And let's just face it. You know what Gentiles do? They get more intimate with human things than they do with spiritual things. 
What can I tell you? What can I tell you? A wise man wins souls. A wise man inherits glory, chapter 3, verse 35. You know what he does? A wise man, or a woman, however you want to put it, a wise man looks beyond the circumstances. A wise man or a wise woman looks beyond. They know that there's a judgment seat of Christ coming. And they know that, that the people they hang out with, the pink things they read, the things they do, the person they marry is going to, the church they go to is going to affect in a great way their eternal reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Bible says they receive commandments in 10.8. Hearkens to counsel, 12.15. A wise man is willing to change what he needs to change. A wise woman is willing to change what she needs to change about themselves. Bible says in 29.11 that a wise man guards his tongue. In 18.15 it says he seeks knowledge. In 15.7 he talks about he puts out and dispenses knowledge. In 14.16, the Bible says that he fears and departs from evil. And in 1.5, he says a wise man will hear and will increase in learning. You know what? There are different levels in learning. You know that? There are different levels in learning. And I, I, all the time that I've been with people in the ministry, all the time that I've dealt with people, I've watched people choose what level they were going to go to and choose what level they were going to stop at. One of the most amazing things, that's one of these days I'll write a book on it, watching human nature as Gentiles. You all get the same Bible. You all have the same Holy Spirit. You all have the same Bible. You all have the same access to me as anybody else does. Why do some of you get to higher levels than others? Choice. Choice. Your first level is discipleship. And then from that point, you choose whatever level you get to. And I've seen so many of God's people get to a level and say, this is where I'm going to stop. I'm not going any farther than this. And it, many reasons for it. Many reasons for it. But there's levels in learning. And a wise man will hear and increase in learning. There'll never be a time that they don't want to go to another level there'll never be a time that they'll choose to let anything, anybody, or anything else in this world come in that'll take them from that learning level. Now a fool, on the other hand, the Bible says in 1.7 of Proverbs, he despises wisdom. In 14.9, he mocks sin. In 20 verse 3, he, or she, <laughs> meddles in other people's business. In 10.18, they slander. In 26.11, they're like a dog. They return under their vomit. Talked about that last week in probably more graphic detail than you needed. In 17.24, they're eyes to the end of the earth. Never satisfy. Always want something else. Always want something more. In 17.10, they resist punishment for correction. And in 28, 26, they trust their own heart. That's a fool in the Bible. You know how you know when I'm dealing with people, and I have people all the time, people all the time will come, and, I, and, I'm, and if you're a parent out here, this is how you know what you got with your kid. Because this is how I know what I got with my church. There are some people you get along with just fine, and everything is cool, and you're best of buddies. And she's a great little gal, and he's a great guy. 
until you have to deal with them on an issue. And then you find out they're not your friend anymore. You got your children a lot the same way. You know how you know if you got godly children or not? The first time you got to correct them. The first time you say you can't do this, this is not a good choice. And if they respond to you, do you know what you got? If they reject it, then you know what you got. Life is choices. And the Bible says we as Gentiles, the thing that we do, we take the glory of God and change it to something that fits our lifestyle. And in doing that, we become vain in our imagination. What does that mean? It means that our imagination, we still think we're something great with God and serving God when we're not. And our foolish heart becomes darkened. Now, I need to say this so you'll understand the context. Just getting saved does not keep you from becoming a fool. Some of the biggest fools I ever met in my life were parents that were saved. Some of the biggest fools I ever met in my life were pastors that stood in the pulpit and preached. Some of the biggest fools I ever met in life were people that had been saved and they were on their way to heaven, but somewhere in the process they quit going through the learning levels and they were satisfied and then they started taking the glory that was God and putting it on themselves and the rest is history. Verse 23 says, And changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Note verse 23 says uh, the word uh, uh, into an image as idol. I like American idol. Like the idols we all have in America. Like the things that we hold up that we spend more time with than God. Idol. That's Gentiles. I'm not mad at anybody. That's what Gentiles do. When they reject God, they'll always replace Him with something and then keep on pretending it's God even when it's not. <clears throat> Let me tell you something. If you'd have showed up about six months before Christ made His entry into His public ministry, if we could go back in time and we could all go there and dress in the garb of the day, so we would be inconspicuous. We would, uh, we would uh, turn your cell phones off so that, you know, they don't give ourselves away. And, and you would, we would be down there, and here we would be in the land of Palestine, right outside Jerusalem. Christ is only a few short months away from declaring himself in his public ministry. He's alive now. For 30 years, he's walked that area over there, and now he's getting ready to declare himself to be the Jewish Messiah. If we would be there those last six months, you know what we'd see? I'll tell you what we'd see the first, first couple days. We'd see a nation that claimed to love God. We'd see a nation that was doing all the things that they thought God wanted them to do. We'd see a nation that were talking about God all the time. We'd see a nation that they read their Bible every day, much more than any of us in this room, including me. We'd see a group of people that, that went to great length to, to do everything, uh, to cross every T and dot every I when it came to the law. We'd see a group of people that when you looked at them from a religious standpoint, how could they be wrong? They, if you would walk into their temple, you would hear them talk about the Old Testament passages. You'd hear them talk about Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You'd hear them quote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. 
You'd hear them on every turn, men and women in their homes, teaching their kids about the great lessons in the Old Testament. Now, when Christ showed up, they rejected him, and they killed him in three and a half years. You know why? All up here. It was all a game. It was all, let's pretend we're spiritual, but we're really not. Let's keep the facade up that we're all okay. We're all doing what's right. Oh, but there was no intimate relationship with God. I think it summed up best that they had a form of godliness, but they had denied the power thereof. And when the real God showed up encased in flesh, when the Lord Jesus Christ came to His own people and revealed Himself to them as their Messiah, these good, godly, dedicated men and women who studied the Bible, gave alms, raised their children, strict disciplinarians, killed Him on the cross. Well, the Bible says He came unto His own and His own received Him not. They rejected Him. Don't you ever doubt for a minute that many of God's people are the same way this morning. Same way this morning. Gentiles always, when they reject God, they'll always replace it with something else and then pretend it's God. In Exodus chapter 12 through chapter 32, there's a great story there where the children of Israel come out of Egypt in bondage. God tells them in Exodus chapter 20, they're not to make any other gods. Clearly, when they got the Ten Commandments. If you didn't believe me, it was on television last night. Oh, you all knew that, didn't you, huh? How many watched? Be honest. How, oh, now, I love it. I love it. I love it. Right up there with Wizard of Oz with me. I love it. That's what I love about Easter and Christmas. You always got the religion. I'm sure sometimes today Ben Hur will be on. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, man, that chariot raised something else. And if it comes, Wizard of Oz and Ben Hur comes on this afternoon, Ben Hur's winning out over that one. But I'm telling you, oh, then that's it. Everybody, you know, it, 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 they brought him out. And he said, Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What happened? Chapter 32, Moses goes up, excuse me, Charlton Heston goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. What do they do? They make a golden calf. Why? There's not two weeks passes between this time. They make a golden calf. And when Moses finally comes down and looks at it, Aaron says, and they all look at him like, we got a problem here? We love God. Now, you know where they learned that? Because... Jews, Shemites, don't think like Japhethites, Gentiles. You know where they got that concept of golden calf? That's not a Jewish thing. They got that from Egypt. That's a Gentile thing. That's what Gentiles do. You talk about evolution, only a Gentile could come up with evolution. You know why? Because Gentiles always take God's creation and want to bring it back down to some kind of man, some kind of animal. So we got evolution. It comes from an animal. I once was a tadpole with my tail tucked in, then I was a frog when I began to begin, then I was a monkey in a banyan tree, and now I'm a scholar with a Ph.D. That's how it works. That's Gentiles. That's Gentiles. Verse 23 says, Man changed the incorrupt, uncorruptible glory of God to my corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed beasts, the creeping things. There's a guy you went out with last week. That's Gentiles. That's what we do. 
The greatest joke that God ever played on man is to get man to get the idea that he's evolved up when in actuality, if you know your Bible, you're evolving down. Man's not going from here up. He's going where God had him in the garden, down. Man didn't come from an animal, but he's going into an animal when he departs from God. I, you know what? I don't, we don't have time this morning, but you don't see this. The way you see this so clearly is if you just study the history, the greatest one, this one is Europe. And then you look at America. You know what? Did you ever see, and I, you probably haven't, but sometime in your life you ought to take what I call a biblical study of music. One of the greatest single studies that shows you how it starts and then how it gets to where it's at today. It's incredible. And you can take music and you can put it basically into five different categories coming through history. It starts in Europe. I mean, the real music we find starts in the Bible. You come through our own history. You have in the history of Europe what they call the Baruch period or the Baruch period. And that's where music's beginning to get its form. They begin to get its, its, its concepts. Harmonies begin to come in. The melodies begin to be formed. And we find at the end of the Baruch period, which runs about 1100 to 1400, a guy by the name of Bach. He ends the Baruch period and enters in what we nominally know the next period is the classical period. You know what the music, the great uh, composers are in the classical? It's men like Bach, Handel, Mozart, Gluck, Haydn. You know what their music does? Their music glorifies God in everything. Why, even today, when they, around Christmas time, they, the great song they sing, Handel's Messiah, and he shall live forever and ever. That's Revelation chapter 19. That's, that's Handel, the Messiah. To this day, it's called classic. Now, you want to take that, you'll find that Bach comes on the scene, who writes his music glorifying God, with another contemporary of his, Martin Luther. And what Martin Luther does for the German Reformation of bringing the Bible through Europe, Bach does with the music that glorifies God. And you can trace through history in Europe how that they treated the Bible and what they thought about the Bible as where the music went. Because as the Bible weighs off and the, the, the whole thing goes dead in Europe, we move into the, around the 1750s into the Romantic period. And now this is where Gentiles who have lost the power of God in their life, lost the word God in their life. The churches that came once came out of the Reformation that were on fire for God have now become dead and the music goes dead. You not only see it in music, you see it in architecture, you see it in literature, you see it in the sculptures, you see it in the painters. It shifts from the glory of God now to the glory of man. The architects now portray the human body. The painters now paint the human body. The music now portrays the natural movement of a man's expression of himself. We have Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Brahms, Tchaikovsky. Why, by the time he writes his 1812 symphony, you can listen to that thing, you, you can actually hear the cannons going off. You can actually hear the guns. It's all expressive of man's feeling. No more glory of God. Well, that time the Bible had ceased to be the impact in Europe. It all began to go downhill. Around the 1900s, we have the modern period. This no longer appeals to the expression of himself, but appeals directly to the spirit in a, in, a, in a physical sense in every way, to the flesh. 
And now we begin to see the gener degeneration of man is into the natural period. And this is basically bringing man back to the animal kingdom. Where now the music is all about the, the perverseness. Why you can hear Wagner's Rattle the Valkyries, which are demons, and begins to open up, you can actually visualize the demons flying through space. You hear the sorcerer's apprentice, and you can actually see the black magic and the witchcraft by music being performed. It's all sensual. It's all of the flesh. It's all desired for man's because man, when he has been touched by God, Gentile, he'll always take the glory of God and make it like to man or to animals. By the time this thing moves into the 60s and the 70s, all the rock groups, all the music groups, you ever wonder why they all take animal names? You ever wonder why rock and roll started with a group called Beatles? Those are creeping things. Three Dog Night, the animals, the monkeys. Then it moves into the satanic, the Grateful Dead, the Twisted Sister, where they get up there and they gotta, can't just play music. they got to now kill chickens on stage. Music degenerates like Gentiles, like everything else when he loses God. There's a church in this city not far from here that boasts they have a jazz group. Let me tell you something. If I told you what the word jazz originally means and where it started and its real contents, I wouldn't say it in a mixed audience. It's the most filthy, godless, depraved sort of word to connect it with a godless, depraved sort of music. I wouldn't even say it in a mixed group. Some this week, some of you guys ask me what it means. I will blush when I tell you. I mean, what do you think was the mindset behind rock and roll? Well, that's a long way. For, when Benny Goodman wrote In the Mood, was he talking about a prayer meeting? We come to the place as Gentiles where we lose sight of how the Bible impacts everything. And yes, we as Gentiles in this country, we once had God in the Word of God. But as we dumped God, God dumped us. And now we find this world, America, just like all the other nations in Europe. Totally depraved. The music degenerating itself now to, to the animals with a sexual context and everything that goes on. And I'll tell you something else. You see the same thing in churches. My philosophy in life is simply this. Never have, never have, never have less doctrine in your songs that you sing than you do in your sermon. We got a little hymnal down there. It's called Great Hymns of the Faith. You know why? Because they're written during a period of time. Check it out sometime. Look at the dates of those hymnals. Every one of them were written when the King James Bible was supreme during those 300 years. They are, the, they are the songs that, that were forged with Bible doctrine. Heard Roy last week get up and sing his song. Danny this morning sung his song. You sit back there and, brother, there is no expression. There's no feeling. There's no emotion that comes into you. You hear somebody talking about the, uh, Mount Calvary and Christ dying on the cross or the blood of Christ. There's no room for any impure thought in that. There's no room for anything that will conjure up anything but my Savior dying on the cross. 
I'm telling you. We see it in every aspect. Every aspect. We have churches today where they have praise bands to help you praise. I had a pastor tell me one time, well, I just can't get into preaching without that praise band firing me up. Well, let me tell you something, Buster. If you need some fleshly band to fire you up before you get up and preach and the power of the Word of God in your heart isn't enough to do it, you better go, go to Barber College. Here, J Truck Driving School. Call it. But that's where we're at today. We need something to jumpstart us in our relationship with God. We all, isn't what this is all about today? Easter? The word Easter is the word Ashtar. God of fertility. I'll give you a million dollars. You show me anybody in that Bible that is having an Easter service before 400 A.D. with Constantine. You say, well, you couldn't get that much money together. Pal, I'd get it together before you find the place. Now, you know why it's colored eggs, rabbits? Because Easter, Ashtar, was the god of fertility. In your Ashtar bonnet with all your frills upon it, in the Ashtar parade. And so you have rabbits, fertile, and then some who lay eggs. Eggs is the Egyptian symbol of fertility. Now, do I look like some pious gas bag? No. Do we not have the Easter bunny running up and down here this morning? Rose in a bunny suit for the kids? Yeah. I'm not so hard to get along with. We're burning her at the stake as we speak out back. <laughs> Did you not see me bring these little kids up and give them Easter presents? Did you not see all the colored eggs that they had? My own granddaughter had 89, 800 eggs. You're going to tell me I'm against Easter? Don't go out of here and say, well, he's a, I'm not against it. We have the whole concept today. I'm against you not knowing the difference. Christmas? You really think Christ was born on December 25th? That's the birthday of Baal, the sun god. I'll take you back to Jeremiah chapter 10, show you a Christmas tree back there set up to the pagan idols that Israel was involved in with the Gentiles long before Santa Claus ever got his first tree. I guarantee you, we got a Christmas tree in our house. We call them Baal poles. I may know it's wrong, but I like presents. Seventeen and a half, thirty-three length. <laughs> hey, I'm smart enough to know that you're not going to change it. You got pastors out there. We don't have Christmas. We don't do Christmas. And I always thought it was funny. I always said, "Well, we don't do Christmas as pagan." Then I asked them, "Do you do Easter?" Oh, we've got the greatest cantati you ever had in your life. Did you say a hot cantati or just a, a what kind of cantati was it? You don't do Christmas, but you do Easter, Ashtar. See how goofy people are? I had a lady tell me one time, well, you know, I don't let my kids do how you Christians, Gentile Christians are the strewest people in the world. Nuts. I knew a church one time, I knew a church one time that they had all these rules that if, that, that if a woman wore slacks, you were out. You're out. 
You got slacks on. You got slacks on. You're the pastor's wife. What are you doing, you hussy? <laughs> and you know what? They, they get up all these rules for you to keep. When I preach, I never preach a set of rules. You know why? Because I learned that human nature will always get around the rules. I don't preach rules. I preach to your heart. You got the right heart with God. You got the right stuff on today. Now, this church was so screwy that, that the girls couldn't wear slacks. So when they went out to ski someplace in, in Montana or wherever they went, the girls had to wear snowsuits. They had to wear dresses over the snowsuit to make God happy. Right? I guarantee you it's right. We get the screwiest ideas. I was making an announcement one time years ago at a church I was at, and I got up and I made a cardinal mistake. Because it was New Year's Eve and we were going to have a, 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 a movie. Uh, one of those Bob Jones University monstrosities, you know. And, and I got up and made the announcement. I said, now, New Year's Eve, movie is going to start at 7 o'clock. Oh, I got pulled in the pastor's office afterwards. You know what he said to me, Ray? He says, never call it a movie. It's a film. I learned a great truth. See, when you get up and you make announcements, you say it's a movie, God goes. But when you say film, God goes. I learned. We are the screwiest people on planet Earth. And we like to take everything. Oh, hey, let me tell you something. This is, this is what Gentiles do. When they know God, they take him and make him into something else. You go back thousand years to the Roman, two thousand years to the Roman Empire. You know what it was? It was Saturday night at the Colosseum. Today it's Saturday night football. Same thing. Back then they, back then they took Christians, put them in the arena, and let wild animals tear them apart and eat them up. Like somebody walked into the head groundskeeper to the Colosseum back in 1000 or 200 A.D. and he says, we got to do something with all these lions. And he says, why is that? They're eating up all the prophets. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just as hip as anybody. Get my hair a little fluffier in the back, you're going to think I'm Joe Osteen. Yeah, back then they got Christians and they fed them the lions. Now, when we go down to the Chiefs Cathedral, it's the same thing. It's just more sophisticated. You think that ain't a cathedral down there? You know what a person said one time? He said, I don't, you know what I, you know what I don't like about you, Bob? And I said, what's that? I said, you're about God watching him in a Chiefs game. Talk about fanatic. He was yelling, screaming, go, 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 go. Every time somebody did the wrong thing, he was yelling at everybody. Now that's, you know where the word, you know where the word fan comes from? It comes from the word fanatic. You got football fanatics? I just happen to be a Bible fanatic. What's wrong with that? Well, a lot of you are Gentile, because Gentiles like to make things like animals. And so that's why you'll go down there at the Chief Stadium and you'll watch them play the Broncos, the Dolphins, the Lions. The bear. You notice that Jews will never name their sports thing after animals? That's what Gentiles do. That's what Gentiles do. Why? Because they're always taking everything that came from God and they got to make it into some kind of thing with animals. Not it. 
You got the Bears, the Eagles, the Rams, the Buffalo Bills, the Seahawks, the Jayhawks, the Longhorns. Oh, that's what Gentiles do. You know what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15? He says this. He says, take, now this is God talking to Israel. He says, take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image like the similitude of any figure, likewise male or female. The likeness of any beast. The likeness of any winged fowl. The likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground. The likeness of any fish beneath the sea. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them instead of God. You know why he told them that? Because that's what the Gentile nations were doing. That's what they were doing. And we as Christians, what part don't we understand about that? But that's what we do as Christians. We follow that same trap. We follow the same line of reasoning down the road. Bible says, verse 23, they changed the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. When you talk about a Gentile nation, America, our national bird is an eagle. Russia, it's a bear. England, a lion. Italy, plate of spaghetti, I guess. I don't get never looked up Italy. We're all got to fashion ourselves like animals because that's what Gentiles do. You know what Israel's national symbol is? It's an olive branch. Out of Romans chapter 9 and 11. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, no, Israel's is the five-pointed star of David. Yeah, right. You know where they got the five-pointed star of David? They got it from Gentiles. You know what the five-pointed star of David is? It's their God Rephidim in Acts chapter 7, verse 43. I'll never forget. Show you how Gentile Christians get, how whacked out they get. I'll never forget. Years ago, I was on a, in, in Europe, and we had a group of people with us, and there was another pastor, or several pastors and their wives. And I was minding my own business. We were on a train going to Dusseldorf or someplace. And uh, I'll never forget. She was sitting across the way, and I was reading my Bible. And she had around her neck uh, one of those little five-pointed star, David, star of David, you know, had around her neck. And it was nice. And we were back and forth there, and we, she was asking me some questions about the Bible. And I was talking to her, and she said, oh, she said, and somehow it got into it, she said, oh, she says, I'm a Jewish Christian. And then I said, oh, really? She said, yes. She said, this is why I wear the star of David, because um, I'm, I want to I wanna identify with the Jews. And, you know, and, and I was kind, but I said, do you know that's a demon you got hanging around your neck? Do you know the five-pointed star of David? First of all, uh, the same million-dollar deal, show me the star of David anywhere in the Bible. David wasn't associated with a star. I bet you don't even know who was associated with a star, do you? It wasn't David. You know where the star of David comes from? The star of David comes from Acts chapter 7, verse 43, when it talks about the demon god that Israel had called the God of Rephidim. You know what his symbol was? Five-pointed star. So I said that to her, figuring that she'd want me to help her out. Is there anybody here that wants a demon around your neck? Don't, don't put your hand up. I don't want to know that. If, if you were a Christian and you had a demon on would you want me to swat him off? Well, I, 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 she got mad. 
she got mad. Like, I made this up. And I said, ma'am, I said, I just thought you'd want to know. She says, well, you have, you have desecrated my belief. Then I said, well, if that's the case, open up your Bible. I want to desecrate some other things for you that I see you're wearing, too. We'll get that all taken up. It was not a good journey. Not a good journey. <laughs> Dusseldorf was a long way down the road. <laughs> long way down the road. I felt like somebody going to come in any moment and say, with a big black leather overcoat, with a big hat on, saying, your papers are not in order. Come back to the train. She had a crucifix around her neck. Now, I don't get off on these things. But since we were all on the I asked her, I said, I said and, and she said, and I said, she, she said, and I guess you have something to say about this. And I said, well, now that you brought it up, uh, <coughs> I said, do you know that the Bible says that the, in Galatians that a cross, cursed thing, cursed is he that hangs on a cross? You realize there's nothing, and I, I can see I'm going to lose my crowd now. I just like to go, well, the wind's going to go out of you. Said, I said, I said, you know, I said, you realize that, that the cross comes in at Constantine in 400 A.D. and there isn't, and it's not a, a Christian symbol. And she said, what's the mode by which my Lord died? And I said, boy, I'm sure glad he wasn't electrocuted in an electric chair. You wear a little electric chair around your neck then? How about if he was shot with a firing squad? A little M16 around your neck? Or maybe it was a bolt action Mauser back then. I'm not sure. And you know what? Let me tell you something. You realize, and I'm not fighting any of it. I haven't even got into little fish pins that come out of that come out of First Samuel five with Dagon, the half god, half fish man. But we'll get into that some other point. But you know what? I don't care about any of that stuff. My point is this: that's what Gentiles do. They always take the glory of God and try to make it like some kind of animal or man or creeping thing. And I'm you know what? I don't care. I really don't. But I want you to get this: if you got a if you got a star David at home, please. Don't throw it away. Don't sell it on eBay if you want to, but don't throw it away. <clears throat> if your grandmother, and I, here's the other problem I'm into right now. I know someplace in this room, somebody's grandma up in heaven right now, God bless her soul, gave you her crucifix, and you hold it as the nearest, dearest thing to your heart, and now I have desecrated the memory of your grandmother, your, your, your cross, and I'll tell you what, and uh, you know what? Keep it, keep it. You never know when you're going to run into a vampire, and it will burn their little suckers <laughs> on the forehead. But keep it, keep it. But here's the bottom line. This is all I want you to get. And I'm sorry if I stepped on whatever I stepped on today and it hurts right now. I'm sorry. But here's the bottom. Here's all I want you to get. None of those things make you spiritual. None of those things make you spiritual. You know what makes you Christian? Not the junk you wear around your neck. It's what you've got inside your heart. That's all I'm trying to tell you. Real Christianity isn't about what we wear. Isn't about what we wear. I've seen pastors. I saw. I've, I know pastors today that think that if you don't wear a suit when you preach, that you're out of fellowship with God. I pastor friend of mine that was so off the wall on that. He went out in Colorado skiing one time with some friends, and he wore a three-piece suit and tie underneath his ski suit so he could stay in fellowship with God. Now you know what? The only one that can help a guy like that is Western Missouri Mental Health. Three rivers. It's two rivers, but it'll be three when he gets there. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Nothing that you wear makes you spiritual. What is spiritual about you is not what you've got on. There's nothing more holy about you than the look you have on your face right now. And what is really God about you, it's what's in here. But we as Gentiles, we change that. You ought to be like Moses when he came off the mountain. 
we ought to be able to turn the lights out in a dark room and the place just shine. Because when Moses had been with face shone like the sun, and the people came down and they said, whoa, I mean, before he even got down there, whoa, was that a, was that a minibus coming down the road there? No, we don't have minibuses back there. Well, what is that? It was Moses, his face, because he'd been with God. Moses, you didn't see him coming down with a big old cruiser. I was driving down the road. We were coming up from someplace downtown the other day, and it was a man, and it was a man. He had a, he had a big, I mean, this cross was probably, wasn't it, Barb? This cross had to be 20 feet long and a big cross, and he's going down the freeway dragging it. And he wants everybody to know that, that, that I guess, that Christ died on the cross. And I, I guess, I, I, I don't know, I wanted to stop and ask him, if you really want to do this, get the little wheels off the back. The back of the cross had a little set of wheels on it so it would go. I never read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where the Roman soldier ever gave me a little set of wheels. I, I must have missed that. And I thought to myself as we drove by, I don't even know the guy, but I knew this. That's exactly what we do as Christians. We want to bear his cross. We just want to add some wheels to it, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Change the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, bird, four-footed beast, and creeping things. You ever notice the four main holidays we have as Gentiles? This is why this message is so important today. It says the first thing is the glory of God. They make it like corruptible man. Be Santa Claus. You know what Santa Claus over in Europe is? He's dressed like Christ. You know what Chris Kringle means? Chris, Chris Kringle, Chris Christos, the anointed one, Christ. He's called St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas. That's the Roman Catholic part and saint to the ch children. I mean, where in the world do you find a story about a man who lives eternally, who comes uh, once a year and brings presents to everybody, who lives north, that seemingly lives forever, he's eternal, who's a nice big grandfather type, and he gives good gifts to people. Like the Bible says, if you being evil know how to give gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts unto them that ask him? You know what we do with Gentiles? We take that and we make Christmas time. And that's why when people go to church, it ain't about Christ's birth anymore. You think Macy's pennies and Saks and Fifth Avenue and all that, they think they care about the birth of Christ? No, it's ka-ching, 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 ka-ching to them. That's what it's about. He said, he said, change the glory of an uncorruptible God like corruptible man. And then he says, birds. So we have Thanksgiving. You ever notice that's our national holiday of Gentiles? Thanksgiving, the America, anyhow, Thanksgiving. You know that it has nothing to do with the Pilgrim Fathers. They didn't have turkey to eat. Do you know what they had to eat back then? Well, it wasn't what we have to eat. Now we say, give Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? We don't remember anymore. So he says, change the glory of an incorruptible God, make unlike the corruptible man and the birds and footed beasts. That's today. That was our little rabbit running up and down out there with his little colored eggs. And then he says, under creeping things, there's your Halloween. Why is it that Gentiles have this of a session of taking the glory of God, making it from God's birth, if you want to take it that way, and make it Santa Claus, to the resurrection, make it a rabbit, to Thanksgiving, make it a turkey, and then to go to the creeping things for Halloween. Lady said to me one time, a Christian lady, you know, Christians are death on Halloween. It's all right, it's all right to have the pagan Christmas and, and Easter, but boy, Halloween. 
she said to me one time, she said, my kid ain't dressing up like a demon. I said, you have an obviously haven't worked down in the nursery with your cat down there, have you? <laughs> I said, <laughs> you, can't, you can't dress him up to make any better demon than he already is when he's down there in the elementary division. People are nuts. Now the lady said to me one time, she says, she says, she says, well, I'm not having my, I don't believe in Halloween. I said, oh, really? She said, yeah. She says, I'm not having my kid dress up pretending he's something and he's not. I said, oh, you like you and your husband? Come to church every Sunday? Never want anybody to Christ? Mean like that? See how goofy we are? Now, I, you know what? I don't have a problem with anything as long as I understand it. As long as I know what the score is. As long as I understand this is what Gentiles do. Because I've got to work with Gentiles. I'm not against any of those things. I just know that Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 was written to the New Testament church. The church of Colossae tells me that there's no holy days for me as a Christian today. Now, if you want to throw some in for good times, I'm all for it. My family gets together. We have a great time. Your family gets together. Hey, you know what? Christmas and holidays and all getting together with family are some of the greatest times in the world. You have more fights and good knockdown drag outs with your in-laws you haven't seen for so many years. It's a great time to have. I'm all for it. I don't care. I just know that's not where my spirituality lies. And that's where your spirituality shouldn't lie. It's just that simple. A wise man, the Bible says, will increase his knowledge. You'll learn these things. But this is what Gentiles do. Take the uncorruptible image of God and make it like corruptible man. I'm not out to stop it. I just don't want to be deceived by it. Paul's writing Romans chapter 1 to us as a church and believers so we might have some fruit among the Gentiles. What I just gave you today, and even though some of it was funny, some of it probably made you mad. I hope all of it made you think. You know, and uh, it's and I have people, you know, and they come walk away from something like this and say, "Well, well, well, he's just a he's a he's a cult leader." No, no, you know, a cult will tell you what to think. I never want to tell you what to think, but I hope what I say makes you think. That's the difference. I don't want to tell you what to think. I'm not into micromanagement. I preach the Bible. I already told you early on. Life is choices, good ones and bad ones. Wise, a foolish man, vain and wise. Those where the choices lie. I just want you to be informed. I want you to understand, when you work with people, and I work with people, this kind of information is absolutely invaluable. It tells me why people look at the things the way they do, why they say what they say, why they go the places they go. I'm not out to change it. I'm out to better understand it so when I get a chance to talk to them about God, I got an insight into where they're at. And for your information, well, happy Ashtar. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father.